0: The Sheep and the Goats from Matthew chapter 25. It's part of our series, Serving in the City. Um, I've been guilty of referring to this as the parable of the sheep and the goats, but it isn't actually a parable. It's Jesus describing what is going to happen. There are a few metaphors in there, like sheep and goats, but fundamentally it is not a parable. Uh, We also need to understand... Jesus talking about the sheep and the goats in the context in which it finds itself. And the context begins in Matthew 24, verse 1, where the disciples ask Jesus, Hey, Jesus, tell us about when you're coming back again. What's that going to be like? And Jesus then launches into the signs of the second coming of Jesus in Matthew 24. Then there's the parable of the lazy servant that person that is not really doing what God's told them to do, and suddenly the master arrives. Ooh, now there's big trouble. There's the story of the ten virgins, which is about how people are waiting for the return of Jesus, but some of them run out of an essential ingredient. That's the parable of the ten virgins, and where we get the give me oil in my lamp song from. Then there's the story of the the talents, how God gives to each of us a deposit of something. And there's the question at the end of the day, well, what did you do with what God gave you? And uh, the person that wasn't given much and did zero with it also got into a lot of trouble. And then we get to verse 31, where Jesus starts to talk in more detail about His return, So let's read together from verse 31. Jesus likes to refer to himself as the Son of Man. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all his angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, a foreigner, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, When did we see you hungry and feed you and thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you as a a foreigner and invite you in, needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Then the king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these brothers of mine... Sorry, I'm muddling that up onto you. That's what happens when you preach the same sermon twice in one day. These are the good guys. Then the king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of these least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, a foreigner, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger and eating clothes or sick or in prison and not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. There are a number of things that really stand out for me in the story. Firstly, the clear separation of people at the end of time into two separate groups. Those who are going to be saved and spend an eternity with God in heaven, and those who aren't going to be saved. Jesus never taught universalism. This idea that's that's creeping into the Christian church, that at the end of the day, everybody's going to be saved. You know, we just kind of, some take longer to get there. Jesus never taught universalism. Time and again, in the parables of Jesus, there's a division, sheep, goat, righteous, unrighteous. Another thing that strikes me in this story is the surprise of the people involved. It's kind of like, oh, gee, um, when did we do all that good stuff and now I'm a sheep? The same applies to, to the goats. It's, oh, when didn't I do what you know, I was meant to do to help you, Lord? There's, there's a surprise here. People are God-smacked. I also want to acknowledge that this is a very difficult passage of Scripture to understand for a number of reasons. Firstly, who's the identity of the people being helped? Some commentators say that these people being helped and given water and clothed and fed and visited in prison, that these are Christian missionaries in the time of terrible persecution prior to the return of Jesus. Some are saying that's the identity of these individuals. The passage is often understood to say that any poor person standing at the side of the road that needs our help, that that is Jesus, and we need to help them. Some have questioned that interpretation. That's in no way implying that we don't have to help people. We know from the Good Samaritan that it doesn't matter who the person is, if they're in need, whether they're from my tribe, my people, whatever, I need to help them. We know that. But we also know that Jesus uses the phrase, these these brothers of mine. And some have pointed out that Jesus is very specific about who his brothers are. It's We know from Matthew 12 that some people came to tell Jesus once, hey, your family's outside, your brothers, your mother is there. And Jesus says, well, who who is my mother? Who are my brothers? It's those who do the will of the Father. So this passage needs to be carefully understood. But of course, the biggest question that arises from this passage is this. Does the eternal salvation of everyone really depend on how they have helped the poor and the needy or not? Because if this story was the only story we had of Jesus, that would be the natural conclusion to come to. That at the end of the day, whether you go to heaven or to hell, it's because of how you treated people. Did you help the poor? Did you clothe the naked? Did you advocate for those in prison? If this is all we had of the teaching of Jesus, we would have to come to that conclusion. But it's not all we have of the teaching of Jesus. So I just want to flag some of these issues before we get more deeply into what Jesus says here. So let me say the first thing. Well, as we really get into the meat of this, where I hope your heart will begin to stir... By the way, it shocked me that many children in this church are not familiar with the return of Christ, by the way, because for the early church, the, the return of Jesus was the biggest deal that there was. I mean, everybody was living for the return of Jesus, and now we have a kind of a, a Christianity where that's a very much like a side issue, but it's not a side issue in the Bible. People we're forever talking about the return of Christ. Some people even gave up their jobs so they could sit at home and wait for it to happen. So I'm not recommending that. Just telling you what people did. Jesus says this, and it's important words When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne. In heavenly glory. Let's let that sink in a little bit. Many people, when they think about the return of Jesus, they they picture him in the stereotypical way. You know, kind of slapped shoulders, perhaps, bit of brown hair, wavy beard, loose fitting shirt, sandals. Is that how you think of Jesus? We tend to think about Jesus as he was when he walked this earth. But that's not how we should think about Jesus. That's not the Jesus that's coming back. Some guy in a dusty outfit. There was only a brief period during Jesus' time on earth when people saw him as he was. And we call that the transfiguration of Christ. We took his best pals up the mountain with him. And while he was there, God allowed the true glory of Jesus to be seen by people. And they were blown away. And Peter said, this is so awesome. We must set up a tabernacle here, a, a temple, so that this can last forever. So there was just for a few moments, minutes perhaps, where Jesus was glorified, transfigured, and God allowed his true glory to be perceived. The rest of the time, his his glory was veiled. Jesus was not even good looking. Sorry, Jesus. Isaiah. Fifty-three tells us he had no glory or majesty that we should look upon him. If Jesus walked past you in the street, you wouldn't say to yourself, that's a good looking guy. You would just say that's a very plain person. Well, we don't say that kind of thing, but maybe some of us think that occasionally. Jesus was very ordinary. No beauty or majesty that we should be attracted to him. Nothing special about him in the human level. And yes, he did have internal organs. Just, you know, when Jesus comes again, it's going to be with splendor and glory and power and shock and awe. And I've been wondering about this contemporary fascination with Superheroes and the Marvel movies and Avengers, which I've not seen. There's almost this innate desire to think of these beings with tremendous power and abilities. The reality is they're thinking about angels. In Revelation, we read there are going to be a hundred million angels at the return of Christ. Let's let that soak in for a little bit. And I was thinking, gee, that sounds like quite a lot of angels. But actually a hundred million small fry when you compare to how many people there on the earth. You know, seven billion or whatever it is these days. All we need to know is that when Jesus Christ comes back, you're not going to have to wonder what it is and what's happening. Because every eye is going to see it. And that's not because it's on Facebook. In any case, Facebook's algorithm wouldn't allow that to be seen. When Jesus came the first time, He said, I've come to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah given in chapter 61. His his sermon in in Luke 4, wherever it is, He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. I've come to preach good news to the poor. He sent me, and He says verse 2, I have come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he doesn't complete the sentence. And whenever you're quoting a verse from the Old Testament, not a good idea to cut it in half. Jesus says, I've come to to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's because when Jesus came the first time, when Isaiah is looking at this, there's this prophetic telescoping. They're different events, but they get zoomed into one when the prophets talk about them from their perspective. They lose time perspective. So Jesus says, I've come to, pro- to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to reveal God's grace to people. But when he comes again, the second part of this prophecy will be fulfilled. And to, and to proclaim the day of vengeance for our God. Day of vengeance for our God. The return of Christ is going to be a a fearsome day. The biblical adjective often used is glorious. And we read about the return of Christ in Revelation chapter 19. And it's scary stuff. He's carrying a sword. He's not on a little... Donkey trotting into Jerusalem, letting, turning the other cheek when people abuse him. When Jesus comes again, it's going to be in glory, and he's going to judge the world. And you should read Revelation 19. It's sobering stuff. And it's going to be wonderful that God judges the world. And if you've ever experienced real injustice and real suffering at the hands of others, you'll be grateful as well that somebody is coming to put things right. And that's what Jesus is going to do when he returns. And we're going to be so grateful for his return because of the persecution Christians are going to be under at that time, the false worship that's going on, And he's going to come in great glory. We read on verse 32. All the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Separating sheep and goats happened every single day back then. Because goats are not as woolly as sheep, so you had to bring them in at night. But the sheep could handle the cold. So the goats would be separated from the sheep, brought into a safer place for the night. Sheep and goats got separated all the time. Why does it say here, all the nations will be gathered before him? Is God going to judge the nations? Okay, South Africa there, Brazil over there, India there. Is it going to be a little like tr- trying to qualify for the AFCON Cup of South Africa? You know, I hope, I, hope, I, hope, I hope. No, we're not. This is not talking about nations being judged. It's people that are going to be judged. But the, the, the Greek phrase is ta ethne, the the nations. That's just their colloquial phrase for the people's. It's the same phrase used in the Great Commission, go into all the world and make disciples of the nations, the people. And so the nations are going to stand, the people are going to stand before God to be judged. Does the fact that God is going to judge every single person in this world fill you with fear and apprehension or peace and gratitude? The answer to that question will tell you a great deal about your relationship with the Lord. Does the day of judgment freak you out or fill you with joy? What strikes me again in this passage is is the surprise of the people. It reminds me of Jesus' words in Matthew 7 where on the day of judgment, this is from the Sermon on the Mount, people are going to say, but 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 i did this i went to church i was a sunday school teacher and jesus is going to say well i never knew you there's going to be that element of surprise god's judgment of this world is a moral necessity Think of all the injustice that goes on in this world and that has gone on. The years of slavery, the the pain that has been inflicted on people. Do we really think that God could just ignore that? How could God maintain his integrity, his holiness? and not judge the world. It's, it's, a, it's an absolute necessity that God judge the world, and He will. Here are some references to God's judgment from Acts 17. He has set a day when He will judge the world with justice by the man He has appointed. Hebrews 9, man is destined to die once and after that Face judgment. 2 Corinthians 5, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Romans 14, we will all stand before God's judgment seat. God's going to make all the wrongs right. There's going to be a separating the sheep and the goats. Let's have a look at these sheep. What awaits the righteous? The king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. The sheep are those blessed by God. The sheep are those in whom God has been gracious at work. Blessed by my Father. They're welcomed into the the kingdom. Notice the time frame here. Prepared for you since the creation of the world. This is not plan B we're talking about. Come and receive the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. you see God's sovereignty and providence reflected in these words? And now Jesus goes into more detail about the righteous. He says, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a foreigner, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick. You looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. For those gazing up at the glorious Jesus seated on his throne, it's going to be hard to imagine that he was ever hungry or thirsty, or in prison. And I want to say here that the sheep in this story are not saved because they have been helping the poor. Salvation is not something based on our good works. And if you help enough poor people, you'll go to heaven when you die. That's not what Jesus is saying here. It's a little more subtle helping the poor and those in prison is not another way to get to heaven you know there's kind of the christian way you know the church way you believing in jesus and his death on the cross and then there's the other way you can just be a good person if you help enough people you'll get there there're not two ways to get to heaven we know from the teaching right through the bible it is by faith we are saved not by works, it's a gift from God. There's an important logical fallacy that we mustn't fall into. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the phrase, correlation doesn't imply causation. We need to distinguish between cause and effect. There is a correlation between those who are saved and a particular way in which they treat the poor. There is a correlation there, and I'm not diminishing that at all. There is a correlation between how the unsaved treat the poor. But it's a correlation. It's not not the cause. Because when you are truly saved... When you've been born again and God's given you a new heart, you will find that you do have compassion for people and you will help the poor and you will be concerned about injustice in society. It's not doing those things that gets you to heaven. Rather, doing those things shows that you're on your way to heaven. Jesus is describing here the behavior of a person who is born again. It's the effect of their salvation, not the reason for it. We can judge the veracity of someone's faith by their lifestyle. The converse also applies. If you find a person And they're quite happy with injustice in society. And if a poor person begs for help, they're not interested in helping. (laughs) It's not those actions that now makes them not worthy for God's kingdom. It just shows that they're not saved. Jesus is teaching us that our salvation results in actions. I'm reminded of what John wrote. He he asks the rhetorical question. He says, if someone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in that person? It's a simple question. Um, if, if we're not helping people who are in need, experiencing injustice, how can the love of God be in us? How can we think we're Christians? James puts it this way, he says, don't come come with your story, you've got faith. He says, show me your faith by what you do. Faith being by itself, if it's not accompanied by actions, is worthless. Martin Luther cleverly said, in German of course, man is saved by faith alone but not by a faith that is alone, a a genuine Christian will want to address injustice in society. It's not the cause of our salvation. It shows that we're on the way to being saved. Let's focus a little on the GOATs. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Why is Jesus going to say, depart from me? It's because he wants nothing more to do with these people. It's a case of get out of my sight. I never want to see you again. He's going to refer to these people as being cursed. Cursed by who? Life? The devil? No, cursed by God. And where are these people going to be sent, according to Jesus? Into the eternal fire. Prepared for the devil and his angels. It's, it's good to read that hell wasn't actually prepared for human beings. But for the devil and his angels, the spiritual beings that rebelled against God. Jesus doesn't talk about hell here, use the word Gehenna, but he's clearly referring to hell. The word that Jesus often does use, that we translate as hell, is the Greek word Gehenna. And it refers to a specific place in Israel called the Valley of Henon. And it is back in the Old Testament, in 2 Chronicles 28, the place where children were sacrificed to the god Molech. It was a place where terrible things happened. And later on in, in, in history, the rubbish dump next to Jerusalem was called Gehenna. It's where they used to throw all their trash. And often it would be burning and smoldering and there'd be worms that ate all the garbage. They were in, into composting back then as well. Jesus often warned people about hell. He believed in hell. He spoke more about hell than heaven. He said to Christians and non-Christians alike, to his audience, although no one was Christians back then because it was before he died on the cross. But he said, don't be afraid of those that kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. Using the metaphor to describe the rubbish dump of Jerusalem. Why are the goats goats? Well, it's explained. I was hungry, you gave me nothing. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing. I was a stranger, you ignored me. I needed clothes, you didn't help me. I was sick, you did nothing. I was in prison, you didn't help me out. Again, there's the shock horror, but when, Lord, didn't we help you? And we know the answer. He will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Therefore, they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. As I sum up today, the Bible doesn't teach that there are two ways to be saved, the church way by faith in Jesus and the social gospel way by being a good person and helping others. There are not two ways to be saved. There's only one way. It's by faith. None of our good works are ever going to earn us righteousness with God. But what Jesus is teaching us in this description of the final judgment is that our actions and how we treat the poor and the needy and address injustice in society, those actions reveal our true identity. Whether we've experienced the grace of God that pours love into our hearts for others or whether we're continuing with hard hearts in selfish living. Correlation, yes. Causation, no. If Jesus were to look at your life, would he be able to see by your actions that you're one of His? Does your lifestyle give it away that you're a Christian? Because right here in the story of the sheep and the goats, we learn how God evaluates the quality of our faith. Does it outwork itself in helping the poor and needy? Let's pray as we close. Lord, we thank you that there's coming a day when you are going to return to this planet and you're going to make everything right. And even the physical creation is crying out for its redemption, groaning, waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. And like the early church, we want to say, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. We want to be inspired, Lord. And for those of you that have suffered greatly in your lives, maybe you've been the victim of a horrendous crime. You've experienced great injustice. You can rest assured that God is going to make things right. In the Old Testament, there's a verse that says, shall not the maker of all things do right? We thank you, Lord, that you are going to judge. And it is our earnest prayer today, Lord, that we would be found among the sheep, that you would say of us one day, welcome, blessed are you. Come into your inheritance. Come into the kingdom prepared for you from the, the foundation of the earth. And help us to realize, Lord, that we are saved by faith but not by a faith that is alone. Help us all, each and every one in this place, to have a vibrant faith that outworks itself in fighting injustice, in helping the poor, in working towards a just and fair society. And show us each, Lord, what our role can be As we were reminded earlier, you created us. We are your workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. And then you say, why? To do good works that you've prepared for us to walk in. maybe some of you just need to take a moment right now to make right with god and to say lord i'm i'm not confident that i'm a sheep maybe i'm a goat and i pray lord that you would save me and i pray i pray father god that you would be the lord of my life that you would change my heart that you would Remove the selfishness that is innate within me. Help me to be a compassionate person, a caring person, a person who doesn't just talk about faith, but who walks the talk. Help me, Lord, and save me, I pray. I ask this in Jesus' name, because of his death on the cross for me forgive my son. May I be born again. May I be spiritually alive. And fill me with your spirit and empower me to do good and to walk in all the the good things you have for me. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks everybody. Let's